Yeah, I'm getting over a cold, so my voice sounds a little bit yeah. off to me. Oh, good. How's it going, Shrews? But no biggie. How are you feeling? Good. I, uh, you, were, you were sick too. Yeah, I came back from Vietnam on Monday and then I just was kind of bedridden for like 36 hours. But uh, no, actually, that was that was something I wanted to lead in with. <sighs> Over the course of the last few weeks, as you've been traveling, what's been the most memorable thing you've eaten? The most memorable thing I've eaten? Oh, that my best meal was at this izakaya in Tokyo called Ibisu Fujiya and it was recommended by a local and the reason it, well it was delicious but also it was memorable because no one spoke English at the restaurant and I didn't know that beforehand and I don't have really good Japanese like I don't I can do basic conversation but they also didn't have an English menu so I wound up just asking them to recommend whatever they wanted to and they were like luckily really open to that like i don't think that would work in hong kong i the servers would be like no we can't do that for you but yeah so they just brought us eight different dishes so and it wasn't it wasn't really even really about a particular dish so much as it was about the the way you maneuver the situation i mean if the food was bad i wouldn't be telling you about it but it was both the experience of having them decide the menu for me and the food being really tasty. Nice. It was like yakitori, like chicken dishes and some hot food. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I would say it's probably on this past trip to Vietnam. Went to Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon. And I think that for the most part, a lot of the Vietnamese food most people are accustomed to is like pho or banh mi. And it was just interesting to try a bunch of different things like home-cooked Vietnamese meals, like in clay pots, uh, just stuff that, that you generally wouldn't see in a more mainstream environment. Because I think it's just a testament to like what is within sort of the, the whole range of Vietnamese cuisine. And also like different noodles. Um, and I don't know, I think there's, there's something about Ho Chi Minh City that's really interesting. It's super hectic and but it's, it's, it's cliche, but it's like this organized chaos where you're like trying to navigate and cross the street. But even though it seems super precarious and dangerous, it's like as long as you keep moving, people are going to sort of adapt to your movements. And likewise, the, the scooters are going to kind of know you're there. So I remember there's some moments where like there's not really traffic lanes. It's like, oh, if you want to get by, you just get by. You want to pass on the on the opposite side on a residential street, then you just do it. Yeah, it looked like you guys ate more than three meals a day, quite yeah, honestly. Totally. Like, you guys ate a lot of food. No, since I've been in Kyoto, well, I've been back to work, so I've just been eating really, uh, just basically. Like I told you right before this call, I basically just went to the nearby convenience store and got a rice ball. Yeah. And, and like had a banana, so nothing special. Has it been easy or difficult to adapt to working remotely um i think the thing that drives me crazy is that coffee shops always have music in them oh and they don't have just ambient white noise i don't know or like maybe i feel the coffee shops play their music too loudly or they don't play quiet enough music i don't know what it is because i work in coffee shops in hong kong too but like here it's just been more distracting yeah yeah so that's been kind of, also i've discovered that they like to keep the coffee shops really dimly lit so neither of these things are really conducive to working so it's less about actually working as you said it's more about the vibes it's like 
Like, you can tell where I am right now. It's like a yellow, dim light. And then there's this, like, loud music in the background. But, yeah. okay, but on the yeah. plus side, their Wi-Fi is pretty good. And they have really open, like, big tables. And they have outlets. So it's, like, a confusing mix. It's like, on one hand, they seem to want you to work. But they've also made it so it's, like, more difficult to get work done. So I, I can only imagine the coffee in the coffee shop is good, though. Yes. Yes. So... I mean, that's that's kind of the main purpose. It's not a workshop. Yes. Coffee shop. Yes, yes, this is true. I mean, there are, if I had really wanted to, I could have rented, like, a workspace. Like, I could have rented a desk at a workspace, but I just figured I would be okay with the coffee shop deal. So that's how it's been. Otherwise, it's been fine in terms of, like, emailing yeah. and calling people. Cool. Should we get started for the day? Let's do it. I think you should start. I started, you like, think- the last two, three weeks. You know what? That did cross my mind. You knew I was going to spring it on you. Yeah. So my topic this week, and I'll I'll be 100% transparent. I'm not as interested in the exact contents of the article so much as sort of the bigger picture. And it's an article from the outline called The Revolution Will Not Be Proofread. So this whole article sort of looks into the state of media, which... I think for me, it's like, I don't want it to sort of fall back on, oh, let's talk about media again, but so much as Mm -hmm. the general approach we're taking towards communication. Okay. So back in June of, of last year, the New York Times had this big sort of stink where they laid off a bunch of copy editors. So obviously copy editors play a critical role in ensuring that the sort of black and white of the English language is reinforced, like the grammatical stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And as we sort of look at the overall landscape, it, it, I think it's sort of a, a commentary on why are we removing copy editors and what does it mean for, what does it mean for the English language, right? Because I think you've kind of made a commitment or you've signaled that your commitment doesn't really lie in um, upholding grammar and whatnot. And I think this is a kind of an interesting sort of intersection or crossroads we're entering where how we communicate how we used to communicate and where we're communicating going forward will inevitably take a much different approach. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, well, are we just sort of moving with the times or are we sort of giving up something that's sort of sacrilegious? No, that's not the right word, is it? Um, I mean, you can, you can use that word. It's just a little bit over the top. I think it's a bit excessive, but I guess my, let me just find a way to better, better way to, to, to communicate it. What, what this ultimately signals is that are we entering a space or a point in time where we're suddenly discounting some of the foundations of the English language being grammar, albeit English grammar is probably overly complex. There's a lot of things that, that run with it. There's even probably a sense of classism that goes with like proper grammar, which I don't know enough about it to get into it, but I think that what I'm really interested in is the normalization of new forms of communication, which is this is sort of presenting itself as. And obviously, the New York Times is a kind of a literary slash media institution. And what does it mean when they no longer have such a, a devout stance on something foundational mm-hmm. like grammar? Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe let's start off. Um, I kind of know the answer, but how important is grammar to you, Sharice? You think you know the answer to me? Yes. I think grammar is pretty important. Exactly. (laughs) But why do you think it's important? Why do I think it's important? Part of me thinks it's... Okay, this is my highbrow answer, is that I think 
having good grammar can lead to better writing as a whole in terms of the way it communicates. I think when you have, I think when your grammar is limited, it reduces your writing options, like the way you express yourselves in writing becomes more basic, like it becomes simplified in certain ways. And I think grammar can enable you to write in more interesting ways. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the inability to have, so what you just said there, mm -hmm. does that prevent certain people without a grasp of grammar to participate within the whole sort of communication landscape? Which I, I think, I disagree. I think that grammar is important, but I'm starting to kind of loosen my grip not because I don't think it's like I, I do believe that having frameworks and things that exist are important, but I also wonder there's there's kind of a two part thing to it. If if you don't have the capabilities to engage in in proper grammar, what does that mean? Like, are you all of a sudden cut out from from the whole conversation, or are you able to just simply modify and roll with it? Like, I think you know texting is probably the most modern example of where grammar has gone and it I, still allows us to communicate. I don't think that having poor grammar keeps you from writing or I wouldn't call it poor grammar. I just think like having more limited grammar doesn't keep you from writing or even writing for certain outlets. But I think it's about, I think knowing grammar and having a copy editor, like I said, just expands how you can write. You have, more options as a writer and i think like if it's okay to start out as a writer who is coming from an emailing texting background but i think it's important to try and stretch yourself to be able to write in different ways i agree to that. i think also grammar um, also the other thing about grammar so one more options in terms of the way you write the way you use language but also sometimes grammar can actually change the meaning of a sentence and if you don't have good grammar, you can sacrifice clarity. The way the English language works, it's like complicated. And if you just misplace a comma or switch some words around, you're saying the opposite of what you really mean. I, I think actually one thing that for me, and whether this is right or wrong, you know, this is maybe something that we'll need to maybe delve in a bit deeper and kind of unpack the thoughts. But given how communication nowadays is going to go far beyond just the written word and what you read, mm -hmm. I think that grammar in itself becomes less important. So for example, this is a great example, like 100% when you and I are communicating over this podcast, I'm sure we're making tons of grammatical errors, like sure. the way we articulate, but no one really picks up on that. Yeah. So that, you know, if video and podcasting, like audio storytelling are already going to be dominant forms of communication and media, what does that mean? That sort of places less of an onus. Like you're not going to have the narration grammar police pop up. I right? don't, I don't want to come across like I, I, I put, I put the written word on a pedestal, but I do think that compared to podcasting or videos, writing is more specific and it's precise and you can go back to it and look at it and, and someone can check you much more easily in mm -hmm. written word. And I think when it comes to the news, like that's important. Like mm -hmm. when it comes to what we're talking about, like podcasting makes sense, right? Like having yeah. this conversation 
as an audio piece makes sense, but when it comes to news about numbers and dates and specific people's names, like, I, I feel like that should stay written. Like, I wouldn't want to mm-hmm. give that up. Mm-hmm. Now, now, let me ask you this. If you had the choice of more reporters, more sort of writers and whatnot, or more copy editors, which would you choose? I think I'd pick more reporters, even so, after everything I said about grammar. Yeah. So the reason I bring that up is that's kind of where all the budget flow went. Yeah. Well, so I, I, they didn't talk about fact checkers. I hope yeah. that they didn't lay off their fact checkers. Yeah, fact checking is definitely something I, I think that we're, people are trying to get some sort of automated response to that. Meaning, like, how do you incorporate AI into the fact checking yeah. sort of uh, approach? Because I think that we all agree that's pretty important. And what, what, I, what I've always been a staunch supporter of is take care of the stuff that's black and white and objective, right? And let yourself sort of roam free in things that are more subjective. So if you can find a way to minimize the time spent on the black and white stuff, like the grammar, like the facts, it just frees you up to think more about the, the subjectivity of it all. Oh, hey, I'm so sorry, but they just started vacuuming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you hear it? I can hear it a little bit, but it doesn't really sound like a vacuum, to be honest. Okay. Um... Let's end it off with this question. In the next five years, where do you see the state of grammar? Grammar specifically. It's true that the formalization of language evolves with how people talk about it. So it's not like people speak and the way we speak, we restrict ourselves to um, the rules of grammar. And often it's grammar that changes to adapt to how people speak, right? Like that's the path of things. Um, I guess I think that when it comes to grammar in media, things are going to get more simplified. The way mm-hmm. people, I'm not to say like, not to say that writing will get worse. I just think that writing will become simpler. And maybe that's a good thing. Like it'll be more easily accessible, like easy mm-hmm. to read and analyze for I have, I have all a kinds theory of readers. On that. Yeah? And I think I'll share with you when you're done. Um, Is it, if I'm going to add my two cents to that, I agree with you. I think that overall communication will simplify, but I also think the simplification might come on the back of a lot of emerging markets that are adopting English. So English won't be their first language, which means that they'll they'll probably adopt their own form of English. You know, whether it's like, you know, mainland China, yeah. um, whether it's, I don't know, Africa, South America, they're all going to have a particular sort of uh, skill set within English. It just will look different. It'll sound different. Yeah. I think you've kind of seen like maybe Singapore is one of the best examples of the modification of the English language based on a culture and a society. Because mm-hmm. you look at the way English has sort of played out and it's not inherently wrong. It's just unique. And maybe it'll be more interesting to see how things bubble up and how things take shape. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. I didn't even think about 
um, English in emerging markets. I was just thinking about English language, currently existing English language journalism. I guess why I bring that up is because I think, yeah, my overall question was more like a, a sort of zoomed out approach on what grammar would look like. And knowing how complex grammar is and the, and the rules that exist, it's going to be very difficult for non-native speakers to kind of perfect it. So along the way, they're probably just going to like adopt their own style that doesn't necessarily detract from the meaning they're trying to communicate. It just mm -hmm. might not be fundamentally correct. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in terms of the times and in news, grammar is a sacrifice made in exchange for more reporting or a quicker turnaround or a more nimble newsroom, right? But thankfully, we still have print publications. Like, we, have, we still have books. We still have fiction and nonfiction books. And grammar is not going away there, I don't imagine, anytime soon. So for people who are like me and who love grammar, there will still be hardcore copy editors and people yeah, who still yeah. go and do that. Sorry, this is such an anecdote, but I remember in middle school getting a C on a grammar test and then being really disappointed in myself. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, let's move on. So my subject this week is a essay that was written by Ming Tian. He is a commercial photographer based in KL in Kuala Lumpur, and he also acts as the chief of strategy at Hasselblad. Um, he runs this pretty popular photography site, um, blog.mingtian.com and this essay is called Creative Integrity or the Struggling Artist Myth Explained and in essence he talks about how over the past six years um, his commercial work has been rewarding but because of the kinds of jobs he takes it's gone from being mostly his creative vision to mostly being other people's creative vision I think that's what it boils down to like he used to make work that was 100% his ideas, his original concept, and now he mainly does work that executes other people's creative visions. And he says, like, you know, that it's rewarding in its own way, like, to create work for clients that is successful, and you can be creative within parameters, but it has, he has discovered that doing that kind of work has taken a toll on him where he feels like he's no longer as capable of being imaginative. Yeah. That doing that commercial work has drawn on his own ability to be creative independently. Do you think that everything he communicates in the tone of his sort of essay, what is the actual merit behind it? Is he just being whiny? Does he actually have some sort of validity? Or is it more like a commentary? One thing that I definitely got, like I took away from it, and, and this is his personal site, right? Like, so it's not like, it's not like he wrote an op-ed for the New York Times and he's um, claiming to have bigger thoughts. Like it's, it's quite personal, like it's about his own life decisions, right? So I'm not trying to like, because what I'm about to say is as a little critical, because I think we have to acknowledge that there is privilege in being able to turn something that's a passion into a job in the first place, that you're able to take something that is a creative expression of your own and then earn money from that. Like that's, not everyone is able to do that and I count myself really fortunate to have been able to do that. And then also six years later being able to turn around and being like, actually I wanna keep it a hobby and I'm gonna do 
other work for money instead. Like that's a kind of privilege too. <laughs> like you were able to find. Yeah, like I guess that's you kind of alluded to what I wanted to say is like the privilege element. How do you do you remove that from the overall sort of context of the piece? Is it valid? Like that's what I'm trying to understand. Like sometimes people bring these to the forefront and at the end of the day it's a privilege to be able to have this sort of difficulty in your life if it can even be yeah i mean i think that's what i said when i said like you know he published this on his blog and it's really about like his personal life choices so it's not really a platform where he had to be like you know really explain his own privilege because like i said this is this is his own personal thing nobody really has to read his own site right like like i said it's not a commissioned op-ed um yeah i just want to be cognizant of it. and i bet he is too like if he gave himself the space to write about it and at the same time i do think there is merit in his essay as it is because i agree that it when you are a creative person and you do a lot of commercial work it can drain on you you start to think only about briefs you start to think only within those parameters of executing for someone else but do you think that this is just come but do you think this just comes down to maybe a lack of personal work like not exploring personal projects enough and maybe that is in many ways sort of a balancing act where we all recognize you only have 24 hours in a day but if you elect to spend 16 hours of that day working and working on client projects and not specifically saying no to allow yourself personal time to let your mind roam free maybe that's a bigger issue at hand and maybe it comes down to a lot of things it's like being okay with making less money charging more um you know i i I just for me personally i look at these and i think that i'm incredibly sensitive when people in a position of privilege are like kind of bringing this to forefront and i'm sure i've i've said some dumb shit too where i'm like oh you know what complain about something where in reality you are so Mm -hmm, lucky to be mm -hmm. in that position and maybe it's just a blind spot but Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm the one that, that, that actually found this, and I found it interesting because I think a lot of successful creators might go through it, and especially photographers that mm-hmm. are in high demand. Like, you're yeah. always shooting, right? But it's really... No one's really forcing you to do it. But how can I you be cognizant? And this guy's not... Ming is not... Is a very intelligent guy. If yeah. you look at the way he writes his dissertations on, on photography, like, he's a high-level thinker, and I just wonder if maybe it's just um, a particular... I don't know. It's like, is it a blind spot? Is it maybe recognizing that you, sometimes you need to kind of balance I mean, for me, when I was reading this essay, it didn't sound like complaining to me. Like, I didn't read it and think it was whiny. I actually thought, like, he's just trying to explain how he... I think whiny is a strong word on like, my Like, he end, was yeah. just trying to explain how he reached this life decision where he's going to be spending more time with uh, Hasselblad and DJI as a full-time job and using that to pay the bills instead of like commercial photography. And he was explaining how he reached that decision. And yes, like having just the fact that he has opportunities is privilege, right? And same for us, like when we have creative opportunities compared to people who don't, like this is this is a privilege that we have to acknowledge, but at the same time that it, we, it's still okay to explain why you picked the options you did just because someone else would kill to have those same opportunities doesn't mean you're not allowed to turn them down i know i've kind of outlined some examples but how would you treat this situation if you were in his shoes i don't know at this point in my life i don't really have a fallback like 
so I make my money from doing creative work of different kinds and even if I feel like that use of my skills is starting to drain on my imagination I don't really have a backup plan like I guess I could go out and you know some people do this like some artists do this they they just teach English or they work in a restaurant or something instead instead of having to like use their craft to earn money but I don't know I don't have that need I mean I okay, to go back to Ming's essay as well I do admire him just for like being honest with his readers he doesn't have to explain himself at all wait but you didn't write for fun before writing professionally um, I would say that I did I had like a personal blog okay so right and I, and I also think that there are other things too that that are that might constitute writing that I also am interested in engaging in like mind you I kind of gave up because I just wasn't happy with the CMS of an Instagram but I used to write I used to enjoy writing like longer form pieces on Instagram. It just never really translated. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think I don't know. Like I, you know, Alex and I had this conversation, which is why maybe I don't I don't identify with it because Alex kind of recognized the need for us to just go and pursue passion projects. You know, it's like say you want to learn video, then learn video. You know, if it's at the cost of something else, then you need to recognize you're taking maybe one step back to go two steps forward. Um, and I, I think yeah. that there's a sense of, I'm not saying everyone has it, but there's a sense of mental stability, emotional stability that comes with creative people. You know, obviously different people operate in different wavelengths. Some people need to be just down in the dumps to create their best work. Other people want to be in a good headspace. And recognizing that and being cognizant of it, I think is critically important because luckily you're as a creative you're not like an athlete where you have a finite timeline and you're going to be done by the age of 33 you know Mm -hmm. so like it's kind of recognizing that this is really a long-term play and you know you're going to go through these troughs and valleys and figure out where is it troughs and valleys no because both of those are dips yeah exactly (laughs) i'll keep that in but uh you're going to go through these mountains and these valleys and whatnot um and i think that's the one thing that you need to recognize but you know at the, at the same time it's like it's it's never easy and it's not like hey you know what day one i'm going to make a conscious effort to try something else and by day seven i'm going to feel better about myself it's more the ongoing understanding of what you need to do to be in a good space and i think that's the one thing that we creative people do have is like the ability to just go out and do stuff that doesn't need to necessarily be um for anyone else you know like if if you don't have like a particular creative skill or whatever like but you have a hobby it's like it's kind of the same thing but i guess there's something to be said about the creative side of just creating something bringing it into the world trying to decide what's more an example of privilege is it more privileged to be able to use your creativity for commercial work and get paid for it or is it more privileged to be able to say I get to turn down commercial work and keep my creative passion on Flatter the side. Flatter one, for sure. Right. Your your ability to say no, I think, is probably the most powerful thing. Because at the end of the day, you're kind of dictating and controlling the situation, right? Yeah. I don't know how many people like clicked through to read the essay, but I, it's a bit long as well. But 
I think the sentiments he expresses, even if other people don't feel as extremely, I think is very common among creatives. Like just that feeling of commercial work draining on your own personal reserve of energy. Yeah. Yeah. Even when it is doing something that is technically a creative I guess skill. the last thing I want to add is when you personally are sort of in a creative rut, what does that look and feel like? And then how do you get yourself out of it? Um, I don't do half as many personal projects as I wish I did. And well, why is that? I think just time management. Like, I do a lot of work, and that takes up most of my time. And then, on like, I'm not one of those people who's so able to work, like, all around the clock that when I'm not doing my client work or work that's paid, that I then feel motivated to do my personal work. Yeah, but I don't really feel like I've not recently felt like oh, I was in a creative rut and I, actually I think part of it is the fact that I have well-defined projects so even when I feel stuck somehow I just do a project that has like really clear definitions and parameters and that makes me feel like like for me personally that makes me feel productive and then able to like keep on making well, I was things. a chime in I think the one thing that just keeps me motivated is learning new things yeah, whether it's creative or not it's just like putting your mind to the test and like kind of gritting through something that you have maybe no place in or you don't really understand and knowing this is not for anyone but myself and like mind you sharing results is always a good thing but if you don't do it then that's also fine yeah I think that's a good place to end things if you are interested in hearing more about Macon and our membership opportunities which include exclusive content, a members-only Slack channel, and weekly briefings, head over to Macon.com, where you can also listen to more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. And if you really like this podcast, do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs> <laughs>